Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm, word. And here we are, doing exactly that. Yep. <laughs> or about to, I guess. Yeah. Oh, well, well mm. let's just get right down to business. What are you drinking tonight? Well, as you know, and now everyone else is about to know, McDonald's was not closed down tonight for maintenance. That's so good. I was able to get myself a McDonald's Dr. P. I thought because you were because you let off with that, they weren't closed for maintenance. That that meant that their ice cream machine was going strong. <laughs> but <laughs> too cold for ice cream. Fair, fair. It is very cold. It's here so cold. In Nebraska right now. So cold. Time of this recording, I'm pretty sure that the temperature is minus two or something like that. Right. And the feels like is even colder because of the wind. Right. (laughs) Why do we live here? (laughs) Sometimes I I do not know. Uh, Well, what are you drinking? I, because you went to McDonald's, I got myself, well, I had you get me (laughs) a a, uh, sweet tea, which their sweet tea is fantastic. It's up there. It ranks pretty highly for me. So I have a sweet tea plus some vodka. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything in me wants to call it a Long Island, but that's not what it is. We've that, discussed this. Yes. I, I think, I don't know what makes something a Long Island, but it's definitely sweet tea and alcohol. Or maybe it is a Long Island. Maybe. We, I, we I talked know. about the golfers. Yeah. We talked about John Daly earlier. And Ar- Arnie Palmy. Yeah. That's an Arnold Palmer plus vodka is a John Daly. Right. But you didn't put lemonade in it, so it's just a... That's true. So it's just Maybe a, it is a Long Island iced tea. It might be. Yeah. That's... We're going to find out later. We are so educated on all things that are interesting. <laughs> we know a lot. All of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, <sighs> my love, do you have a feel-good fact for us today? I do. It's a short okay. one. Okay. The Chinese word for penguin translates to business goose. <laughs> <laughs> I love Business it. Business goose. It's like a little goose in a, in in a, a suit. In a tuxedo. Yeah. <laughs> that one just immediately. Formal, very formal business goose. Yes. <laughs> that one immediately made me laugh. And so I was like, yeah, this will this will do. <laughs> I love that. It translates to business goose. Yeah. I, I didn't believe it at first. And so I like looked around mm-hmm. and I'm like the consensus is that the words or the, the word translates to business goose. That's so funny. So we all win with that one. Yeah, I like that. Yep. Look at that. All right. Well, my dear, why don't you go ahead and uh, take us away with your story today? All right. So we are back this week with another true crime case. Okay. This is one of those stories that unfortunately is deeply frustrating and unfair in just about every single way. I've had this one on my list for a while. And so today I'm going to tell you about the horrific murder of Nona Dirksmeyer. Hold on, Kev. This one's a doozy. All right. In the afternoon hours of December 15th, 2005, friends and family of 19-year-old Nona Dirksmeyer were beginning to become worried about her. And it turns out that they were unfortunately right in their worries. What investigators would find in Nona's apartment was a gruesome scene that immediately begged two questions. Who on earth would do something so awful and why? Hmm. Nona Dirksmeyer was born on December 26, 1985, to her parents Paul and Carol Dirksmeyer in Zachary East Baton Rouge Parish in Arkansas. She was one of six children in the family with one sister and four brothers. 
Nona and her siblings grew up in Russellville, Arkansas, and while everything seemed idyllic and fun on the outside, Nona was dealing with some incredibly awful trauma. Content warning, I'm going to briefly mention childhood sexual assault. I'm not going to get into any of the nitty gritty of that, but it's still a sensitive topic, so Mm -hmm. heads up on that. So when Nona was 10, her father passed away, and shortly after he died, it was revealed that her dad had been sexually abusing her from a very young age. Nona had told nobody about this until after her dad passed away, which was so awful, not just for her, but for the entire family. It's like you see your dad Mm -hmm. or your husband or your brother in one way for so many years, and then suddenly you have to reckon with the fact that he was a monster. Right. Oh, gosh. That's horrible. So, like, in a weird way, you're grieving the loss of someone who you loved, but in another way, you're grieving the fact that you never really knew that person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And poor Nona, not only having to deal with such disgusting and terrible abuse, but to have to keep that to herself for so long. Right. So I'm very happy that her mother 100% believed her right away Mm. and really worked hard to support her daughter, even in her own grief. And I'm sure that was like impossibly hard. Well, and good on her mom to just take that for what it was and- yeah, I'm sure we'll hear more about that or not about everybody in general, but not everybody d- does that or right. would handle that that way. Right. Unfortunately, we see m- many times mm-hmm. that a-, a victim has to fight to be believed. And I'm so thankful that her mom believed her right away. Yeah. So I think that her trauma, as well as a few other factors, really played into her personality. While she was extremely beautiful and super sweet and creative, she was also very shy. She had a small handful of very loving and supportive friends. One such friend would end up becoming her boyfriend at Dover High School. This was a boy named Kevin Jones. So Kevin and Nona actually both played in the high school band together. He played the trumpet and she played the flute. These two were so cute. (laughs) They'd actually known each other since like preschool or kindergarten. So there was already a level of like familiarity between them when they started dating. Yeah. He was eventually one of the very few people that she confided in about her abuse. Hmm. So as soon as they started dating, they were pretty much inseparable. They loved to plop down on the couch together and spend hours watching movies and laughing together. That's sweet. Yeah. Just sweet young love. Yeah. You know, and you know, first boyfriends, first girlfriends, all that. Right. You are, you know, you bump into each other at school and it's like, you just are meeting your true love for the first time. And then you get to hang out and all you want to do is hang out with them. Right. They right. were like the poster children for that. You see each other in the hall and you go, hi. It's you. It's like you. You pass hi. a note. Uh-huh. I heart you. Yes. And that's <laughs> and that's the depth of your relationship. Not with in these In a two. good way. Yeah. It's just, it's simple and sweet. Yes, exactly. That's how they were. So as the years went on, Nona would become what many refer to as an unlikely beauty queen. So this was not because Nona wasn't beautiful, because she was very, but it's just that she was so painfully shy as a child (laughs) and young teenager. Yeah. Eventually, after much persuasion from her closest friends, she entered the Miss Pettigene Valley pageant. And even though she was super nervous heading into the pageant, she ended up absolutely loving it, and she actually won. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like her friends had hoped, this was exactly what Nona had needed to come out of her shell. And she was super good at it, even Hmm. signing up with a pageant coach and all of that. She had a natural stage presence and a super beautiful voice. She ended up going on to compete in and win several more pageants and also used her gift of singing in her church choir. 
As a pageant queen, her platform was really focused on preventing childhood abuse and childhood sexual abuse. And she was a member of Big Brothers Big Sisters. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was really sweet. She would use her free time to connect with young girls who were going through the same things that she went through. Yeah. She literally took all of the pain and trauma from her awful experience as a child and used it to try and help others. Yeah. She was wow. she was really awesome. What what year abouts is this? Uh, this would be probably 2004, 2005. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is like still a good long time before um, a lot of that kind of stuff became common conversation. Even, mm-hmm. I mean, even still, it's not like so common, but it, there's definitely more of an openness today than there was 15 years ago mm-hmm. to talk about that kind of stuff. Well, and there's so. more resources to become educated on it mm-hmm. and then to go and actually do something with that education that you get. Right. You know, so she was like blazing the trail yeah, kind of thing. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So after graduating from Dover High School, Nona attended college at Arkansas Tech University in Russellville, and she was pursuing her degree in music. She had goals of becoming an elementary school teacher. Uh, she wanted to teach music yeah, to yeah. little kids. Kevin also attended Arkansas Tech when they were both freshmen in 2004, but he ended up transferring to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, which was about two hours away from Russellville. Mm-hmm. He'd come home on most weekends to see his mom and to spend time with Nona. Despite the fact that they were now kind of in a long-distance relationship, Nona and Kevin would do whatever they could to keep in contact with each other between visits. They'd text and talk on the phone, and whenever he'd go home to visit his family in Dover, which was like 20-ish minutes from Nona, they'd make sure to hang out. So sometime after Nona turned either 18 or 19, her mother had gotten remarried to a man named Dwayne Dipert. I hope I said that right. Uh, From what I could find, Dwayne was a nice guy and there weren't any problems with the dynamic or anything, but he was pretty strict with the house rules. So Nona decided that she was ready to move into her own apartment, which was an off-campus apartment in Russellville. So she was still close by. Right. So that was just like one of those normal things. And she was really proud to have Mm -hmm. her own space. Like, Mm -hmm. I did it. Yeah. Like, every person hits that stage where they get their first apartment or even their dorm, yeah. you know, they're pumped up that they got their own space, you know? Right. It's, it's a, it's an entryway into independence really. It is. Yeah. It is, but it still feels safe in a way. Yes. So Nona was actually really good about keeping her apartment secure. She always locked the front door and double locked the sliding glass door in the back with a regular lock and one of those blocks, those like break-in bars. Oh, yeah. That you can wedge in the gap of a sliding Mm -hmm. glass door so people literally can't break in without breaking the glass door. Right. So she only had three keys to her apartment, one for herself, one for Kevin, and one for her mother. So whether she was at home alone or out of the apartment, she kept the doors securely locked and the block in the sliding glass door just in case. Yeah. So she was like aware of that. Mm -hmm. So life marched on. And on December 14th, 2005, Kevin headed home for winter break. On his way to Dover, he stopped by Nona's apartment and they spent the day together before he went home around midnight. Hmm. A little while after he got home, he called Nona and they talked on the phone for a little bit, discussing their plans for the following day. So Nona had plans to finish up taking her finals. Then she'd planned to go meet up with her big sister, little sister friend, so they could connect before winter break. Yeah. So Kevin was super close with his mom, Janice. And so he planned to take her to her work's Christmas party, but like as her date, (laughs) which is cute. cute. So Janice was a school librarian. So it was like the school event for the faculty. 
Cute. Yes. Fun. On December 15th, around 9 a.m., Nona texted Kevin and said, quote, good morning, cuddle muffin. I love you and hope you have a great day. Oh, my God. I know. Kevin expected Nona to send him a text after she was done with her final because that was a pretty routine thing for them to do. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to touch base between activities. But she didn't text him. Hmm. Later on that day, Kevin was starting to get a little bit worried. Like, why have I not heard from her yet? Yeah. Her final was over hours ago, and he still hadn't heard from her. He made multiple attempts to get a hold of her before he eventually texted her, you alive, around 4.30 p.m., but she still hadn't replied. Oh, man. Later on that evening, Kevin and Janice were on their way to that Christmas party, and he was telling her that he was starting to get a bad feeling about the fact that he hadn't heard from Nona, and it, like, really just wasn't like her. Yeah. His mom agreed that it was weird, so Kevin actually contacted one of his friends a guy named Ryan Whiteside. Ryan worked as a pizza delivery driver near Nona's complex, and he pretty routinely made deliveries there. Hmm. Kevin asked Ryan if he was working that night and if he could possibly go drive by Nona's apartment and check on her. So, like, everybody's doing the right thing here. Yeah. Ryan agreed. So when he got there, Ryan told Kevin that her car was at the apartment complex and that the upstairs light in her apartment was on. But when he knocked on the door, Nona didn't answer. Hmm. So this really didn't feel right. So Kevin and Janice headed over to Nona's apartment to see what was going on. Ryan was waiting outside of the apartment when Kevin and Janice got there. It's worth noting that Kevin did not have his key to Nona's apartment that she'd given him. Hmm. He left it at his mom's. Sure. So they spent a few minutes knocking on the door, but still there was no answer. So they went around the back to check the sliding glass door. Kevin didn't really think it would lead anywhere since she always kept the door locked and the break-in bar in place. Mm -hmm. But when they checked, the door was only partially locked and they were able to unlock it the rest of the way very easily. Oh, no. Yeah. So when they entered the apartment, they discovered something horrifying. There on the floor, nude except for a pair of white socks, was Nona's body laying face down on the floor in a pool of her own blood. Oh, no. Yeah. So content warning, obviously. (laughs) I'm going to sporadically describe the crime scene, the murder and methodology for the next solid chunk. And it's pretty gruesome. So just a heads up. Mm -hmm. So as soon as Kevin saw Nona on the floor, he ran over to her and like held her. And like he was checking, like, is she breathing? Some reports say that he tried to offer CPR um, and he yelled for his mom to call 911. Yeah. Kevin was a mess. Like he's freaking out, Uh, which is understandable. Yeah. When police arrived on the scene, led by Chief Officer James Bacon and Officer Mark Frost, they saw Kevin covered in Nona's blood, which felt suspicious to them. Well, yeah. Real quick side note, this was Frost's first homicide case. Oh, wow. So keep that in mind. Yeah, okay. They kept saying it was too convenient that he was covered in her blood, which Mm. we'll get into that a little bit more as we go. One other thing they noticed right away was that there was blood everywhere, including on the blinds, on the wall, And even the light bulb on the floor lamp, which Mm -hmm. is a weirdly important thing to remember. Okay. Doesn't feel like that would be important, but it's really important. Well, that is a very precarious place for all that to go. Yes. For sure. There were obvious signs of a struggle on Nona's body, like defensive wounds, as well as stuff strewn about the room that she was found in. Mm -hmm. On the kitchen counter, they found an empty condom wrapper, but no condom and no signs of sexual assault on Nona's body, which was strange given the fact that she was nude when she was found. Oh, yeah. And like empty condom wrapper, no condom. Very weird. So they noticed that there were no signs of a break in either. They also found one of the murder weapons, a lamp that belonged to Nona. 
The mm. lamp was one of those ones with the super heavy, like round metal base mm-hmm. on the bottom. And it had been used to beat in Nona's head. <sighs> oh. Just awful. It's like a brick, yeah. you know? Yeah. They estimated that the base of the lamp was somewhere around five pounds on its own. So that's a straight up blunt force weapon. Yeah. Yeah. It was discovered near her body, broken into three pieces, and her blood was on the base of it. The way that the blood was pooled on the floor suggested that the body had potentially been moved or even staged in the position that it was found in. Mm. They also believe this because though her clothes were in the same room as her body, there was no blood on them. Oh, weird. They're assuming it's the same clothes she was wearing that day, Mm -hmm. which is also just like, what? They also found her cell phone near her body, but the battery had been taken out of it and never recovered. So on some level, they believed that some elements of the crime scene were staged, mm-hmm. but really with no clear motive. Yeah. They noticed several stab wounds to her neck and shoulder as well. So at the coroner's office, it would be determined that Nona had been stabbed in the neck and shoulder 17 times. Oh, What? The shoulder wounds indicated that Nona had sort of like pulled up her shoulders in an attempt to cover her neck Mm -hmm. from like the stabbing that was happening, obviously. And so whoever did this, there was like a lot of frantic rage, like evident in the stab wounds. Whoever this was had then taken the lamp and slammed it into the back of her head over and over once again, in such a vicious way that there was evidence of bruising on her brain from the attack. Oh, my gosh. They believe that the hits from the lamp were actually what killed her. So I'll talk more about the autopsy later when we get into, like, the legality stuff. But that's the need to know for now. Mm -hmm. So like I said, right away, police were suspicious of the boyfriend. Sure. Which is, like, kind of always the first suspect. Like, the partner is always. It's understandable. It's just... Currently, I'm not psyched about that, but I understand that that's the natural first place to go. Yeah. There were several things about Kevin's behavior that did seem suspicious to the police that first arrived on the scene. First off, I guess that when police arrived and saw Kevin covered in Nona's blood, that he actually reached out his hand towards one of them, like as if he wanted to shake their hand. But he retracted it and sort of mumbled something along the lines of, oh, wait, I can't since he was covered in her blood. Mm, yeah. Him, like I said before, him being covered in her blood was also a red flag. Like, wouldn't it be a little too convenient for a murderer to like, quote unquote, stumble upon the scene of their crime and respond by pretending to hug and hold the body? Sure. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. I understand that too. Potentially. So there were also a few other odd comments that Kevin made to officers like, quote, I watch a lot of law and order. End quote. I don't know what the context was of that one. Like if it was like, you know, they're just having a conversation where they're kind of explaining how investigations work. And he's like, oh, I know. Like I watch Law and Order. (laughs) Like I would I would be someone who would say something like that. Like I've seen every episode of Criminal Minds. Like I know how this goes. Right. But they took note that he said that Mm -hmm. they thought that was weird. So they brought Kevin into the police department for questioning. While he was obviously very upset and agitated, Kevin appeared to have been cooperative with investigators from the get-go. One important thing to know is that Kevin did not lawyer up when he first spoke with police. In his mind, he was innocent, and he was just trying to do his part to help police catch the person who did this to the woman that he'd been with for like five years at this point. Right, right. But the interrogation did not go well for Kevin. 
He recounted the events of the day and into the evening leading up to his discovery of Nona's body at her apartment. He said that there would be multiple people that could verify where he was at the time that Nona was murdered. He also had no defensive wounds on his hands or arms, which there was plenty of evidence that Nona had fought back against her attacker. Sure, yeah. Police didn't believe him, though. Oh. Yeah. In their minds, the various oddities about the case so far all reflected pretty poorly on Kevin. At this time, it was learned that Kevin never used condoms, and so police came up with this narrative that they thought made perfect sense. Kevin went over to Nona's apartment, he saw the condom wrapper and knew that it obviously wasn't his, so he flew into a fit of rage at discovering Nona had been cheating on him, and he killed her in a crime of passion. Mm. To them, it felt textbook. This is a crime of passion. So Kevin denied this over and over again. He said that even if Nona had been cheating on him, that he loved her and would never hurt her, let alone kill her in such a gruesome way. Yeah. He said that he'd kill himself before he ever did anything to hurt Nona. Hmm. He also said that he'd do absolutely anything that the police needed from him. Like, whatever you need me to do, I'm going to do it because I want to help. Yeah. Anyone can say that, like, sure. in fairness. Sure. But I watched portions of the interrogation video, and it's really frustrating, honestly. One of the officers told him there was no doubt in his mind that Kevin had killed her. What? And that he was just trying to figure out why. So, like, this, this is, is a 19-year-old. <laughs> this does not seem like great police work. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you are not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so this I, sent Kevin into a major panic. Yeah. He's like insisting, like, it's really sad. He's like, no, like, no. He's yeah. screaming and crying. It's awful. So he insisted, I did not do this. So at one point, police left the interrogation room. Hmm. This is a pretty standard practice because a lot of the time they're able to catch people on camera when they like say or do anything that may turn out to be incriminating evidence of their guilt in a crime. Sure. Like we've seen plenty of interrogation videos mm -hmm. where it's like, Oh, you so did it. Yeah. <laughs> like you can tell it's really obvious. Yeah. Some people also get so confident that they're like, <laughs> they're never going to catch me. And I did it, you know? Yeah. And they don't realize that they're being recorded. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But when they left the camera caught Kevin punching the back of one of the chairs, clearly very upset. And this seemed to be the smoking gun for police. What? They're like, oh, we just, he just lost his partner in a terrifying way. And now we're trying to tell him that he did it. And he's a little frustrated and overwhelmed emotionally. Yeah. And that's saying he that did he, it. That's see, this is what's crazy is we've, we've had several stories of really, really great police work. Mm -hmm. And uh, so far that has, that is the, primary thing that I'm focusing on in this story is just how unreasonably bad this is already. I know. Oh, that's dumb. Okay. This is like within hours yeah. of discovering her body. Yeah. So on top of the video, when the crime scene was processed, they found a bloody partial palm print matching Kevin's at the scene. And they saw his you alive text that he'd sent to her on the day that she died. Kevin was let go after 95 long minutes of interrogation, but the damage was done at this point. Hmm. The police 100% believed that Kevin committed the murder, and they worked to be able to prove it. They continued what? their investigation by having conversations with somewhere around 50 different persons of interest in an attempt to rule out everyone that they could, like anybody in proximity to Nona. Sure. People who have classes with her, neighbors, friends, yeah. boys she might have been talking to, all of that. 
And so, yeah, they they ruled out 50 people. Wow. It was in the days after Nona's murder that her family really had to come to grips with this awful event. Someone unknown had murdered their daughter, sister, friend, brutally. And it really made no sense because Nona didn't have an enemy in the world as far as they knew. Right. Kevin helped Nona's family with setting up the plans for her funeral, including helping them choose the outfit that she would be buried in. Oh. Yeah. And sad. And sad. On the day of Nona's visitation, which was December 21st, 2005, six short days after her murder, Kevin called into the police department because he had something he wanted to share with them that he thought might be helpful to the case. So when he did, police asked him if he could come in and give his statement at the station. Hmm. He agreed and went in, but he made sure to let them know that he needed to be done before the time of the visitation because he really did not want to miss it. Yeah. So Kevin goes in to give that statement. Yeah. He told police that he'd heard a rumor from multiple people that there was a man seen leaving Nona's apartment on the day of her murder that, like, multiple people corroborated seeing this guy. Mm. They pretty much blew off his statement and instead asked Kevin if he would agree to a polygraph test. Kevin agreed. He was given the test and then the results. Kevin had failed miserably. The man who administered the test said it was the worst failure of a polygraph that he'd seen in over 20 years. What's what? worse, in my opinion, is that everything at the police department was so delayed that Kevin missed the visitation. No, the whole thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, my god! He was there for something like seven or eight hours. He thought it was going to be like a five-minute deal. Yeah. Oh. And then once they asked him to do the, the polygraph, he was like, okay, that might add like another 45 minutes, but I've got time. Sure. He missed it. So... Her family was really concerned about that. And other members of the community obviously noticed that Kevin wasn't there. Sure. There's Kevin. And so now people are like, wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, gosh. This is, that's awful. Okay. When police began discussing their findings on Nona's case up until that point with her family, they basically painted a vivid picture of Kevin killing Nona in a fit of rage after discovering that she'd been cheating on him. Mm. At first, her family defended him. But after, they thought more about it. Like, they, they just sat back for a minute. And they're like, huh. So they started to become concerned that, what if Kevin did do this? Sure. They're being told by the police. Right. It's it's an understandable, because because there's no answers. Like, mm-hmm. you have to be, I mean, you don't, I guess you don't have to, but it's reasonable to say that you're going to ask a bunch of what ifs after so much time, mm-hmm. like after just even a couple of days, you're mm-hmm. well, what if, what if, and then you're also being essentially groomed into believing something, mm-hmm. even if there's not enough evidence or anything like that, or if there is like, there's even still kind of a point of this is crossing a couple of, uh, ethical lines, it sounds like, but I'm going to let you keep on going because I don't want to jump the gun on my part either. Yeah. <laughs> well, Nona's family was so concerned that they actually told him that they didn't want him to come to her funeral. Oh, no. Like, putting myself into her family's shoes for a second, Uh huh. I, like, completely get that. Yeah. If I thought that this person who I thought I trusted, especially consider poor Carol, who like Nona was harmed at the hands of her husband Mm -hmm. and she had no idea. And she never thought that he would be capable of something like that. So as far as someone like Carol is concerned, she's sitting there and replaying like, Oh my gosh, it's happening again, but worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you know? Yeah. And so I do not blame her family at all. Yeah. Kevin did show up to her funeral, but he sat alone and just violently sobbed for the whole service, Hmm. mourning the loss of his girlfriend and all of the time that he would never get to spend with her ever again, and the sticky situation he was in with the police and with Nona's family. Sure. Shortly after the time of the funeral, police held a press conference where they stated that they knew who the killer was. They knew that this killer was a narcissist, which I'm not sure how they arrived at that diagnosis. But they also had a pretty good idea of what had gone down. Like, they've got a pretty good timeline. Mm -hmm. But they didn't name names. But with the rumors already swirling that it was Kevin who did it, the police didn't really need to give a name. Right. Russellville is a relatively small town, and they were completely divided on this. Mm -hmm. You have one half of the town saying, no way. No way Kevin would do this, no matter how mad he got. He's a good kid with a solid head on his shoulders and, like, He loved that girl so much. He Mm -hmm. loved Nona. He would never hurt her. And then you have the other half of the town who's like, you know what? I have noticed that he has a temper. Or maybe like he can get aggressive when he's mad. Hmm. Maybe the news of Nona cheating was too much and he just snapped. Hmm. So needless to say, it was a very hard time for Kevin and for everyone close to Nona. Which once again, poor Carol. Yeah. And those, her siblings. Oh my god! I can't even wrap my head around how difficult trying to process all this would be and like to not have any answers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if they're anything like me, they fill in, they fill in the blanks with the worst possible things that they can. And the worst possible thing would be that someone who loved her did this. Right. You know, she was betrayed in her final moments. That's what they're, and that's what they're being told directly or indirectly. They're being, they're being direct. They're being told basically in no, (laughs) In no uh, uncommon word mm-hmm. that they're right. Mm-hmm. Like, you're right. Yep. Betrayed. Lied to. <sighs> yeah. So, so far, I, I'll be honest. I'm sitting here and I'm hearing all this. And my first gut is to say, okay, well, clearly there's some shoddy police work going on. And then on the other hand, I'm going, okay, well, because of that police work, there's <laughs> not any other theories coming up mm-hmm. so you're kind of stuck in this weird spot of this this is kind of where we're where we're at now and so i'm yeah i'm sure there's more so please <laughs> there continue. is there is more so months went by with no progress in the case until kevin jones was arrested for the murder of nona dirksmeyer on march 31st 2006 hmm. it was during this time that the story being told by police was working to prove that kevin was in fact the most logical suspect in Nona's murder. From evidence gathered from the crime scene, Kevin's statements, and failure of the polygraph test, the idea was that he'd driven over to Nona's apartment to surprise her. He let himself in with the key that she'd given him. He saw the condom wrapper and knew it wasn't his. Mm -hmm. When he confronted her about it, it came out that she'd been seeing other men, and so he snapped and killed her in a fit of rage. They believe that he then staged the crime scene, that he made sure to stop at stores and restaurants that would leave a paper trail, and that he made sure that her body was discovered with multiple people present. Hmm. Then, when they entered her home, he made sure to touch her body in order to cross-contaminate the crime scene, which would make it difficult, if not impossible, for investigators to be able to gather clear-cut evidence against him. Sure. Which, that actually is a pretty believable story. Yeah. It really is. But they're basing it off of pretty 
weak evidence right. at this point, as far it's, as we know so far. It's a it's a very realistic theory mm-hmm. based on really taking nothing else into consideration from the start. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Before we move on, one other version of this story was based off of a text that Kevin had apparently sent to Nona on the day of her murder. He had texted her, why are you leading me on? So the assumption in this version of the story is that Kevin had driven over to Nona's apartment, assuming that she would be out taking her finals at the time. He then planned to snoop around and see if he could maybe find some incriminating evidence that she was cheating on him. Mm -hmm. However, things didn't go perfectly according to plan because she was home when he got there. Infuriated by discovering a condom that wasn't his and surprised by the fact that she was home, that's what caused him to snap. Mm. I don't know how to feel about that version of the story, but that was another one that I had seen. So I figured I should probably share it. Well, the question that immediately pops up is what evidence is there of that? Right. Like that's, it it, it sounds like the text that is being presumed doesn't have any evidence. Mm -hmm. So it's literally just a made up story that Mm -hmm. someone said, maybe this happened. Mm -hmm. And that's, also not <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's not legitimate in any court. Right. Yeah, anyway. right. So when it was time for the trial to begin in 2007, Kevin's defense asked for the trial to be moved because if he was tried in Russellville, it was highly unlikely that he'd be given a fair trial. Sure. They were granted that request and the trial was moved to a town called Ozark. Mm. And the court proceedings for this case were straight up like nuts, like a roller coaster. Oh, really? So we're going to start first with talking more in depth about the coroner's findings because his findings ended up being one of the major hinge points of the whole trial. Hmm. Medical examiner Dr. Charles Cox conducted the autopsy. So like I said earlier, Nona had suffered 17 stab wounds and several additional defensive wounds on her neck and shoulder, indicating that she had lifted her shoulders up to protect her neck. Mm -hmm. It was believed that the stabs and cuts were all made while Nona was still alive. Nona had suffered several blows to her face, which Dr. Cox believed were made with fists. Mm. He noted that the top of her head had been struck with an instrument, most likely the lamp, and that the injury on the back of her head was what most likely killed her. Mm. The wound itself was so deep that her brain and face were bruised, and there was a fracture on the back of her skull that pushed the bone inwards about three-eighths of an inch. Mm. Which, like, if you can consider how much pressure it would take... To cause a fracture like that yeah. of a, of your skull. So he believed Ugh. that she was on the ground on her stomach when this final blow was made and that she would not have woken up from these injuries regardless of when her body was discovered. Like this would have 100% killed her no matter yeah. what. Yeah. There were signs on her body that she'd also been strangled, including a fracture to her hyoid bone. There was bruising mm. on her neck and the blood vessels in her eyes had ruptured. Wow. As far as gosh, that's like, yeah, violent, very violent. As far as signs of sexual assault, Dr. Cox couldn't find any signs, but given the presence of the condom wrapper, he couldn't really rule it out either. Sure. Sure. There was no DNA, you know, no, no evidence, no wounds or anything like that. Right. There was enough of a question mark. Yeah. If the person had used a condom to like conceal. Sure. DNA or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the the surroundings paint a little bit of an interesting picture, so that makes sense. It was believed that all of these injuries were inflicted in a matter of minutes, 
and that the whole ordeal didn't last any more time than that. Hmm. There wasn't enough evidence one way or the other, but he did believe that she was killed sometime between 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. It's like a three-hour window. Yeah. So the prosecution came in and laid out their case against Kevin Jones. They laid out their best assumed timeline of events. The estimated timeline of events was that Kevin had arrived to Nona's apartment around 10.55 a.m. They focused pretty heavily on the idea of this being a crime of passion, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, They pointed out the inconsistencies in his statements that he gave while he was first on the scene of the crime, his interrogation, and the fact that he failed his polygraph test. Mm-hmm. They also pointed out that at the time that it's believed that Nona had been murdered, Kevin's phone was off. Mm. It's unclear if it was turned off or if the phone had died. And in fairness, cell phones in 2005 <laughs> were very different <laughs> yes. than the phones we have today. Yes. All it would have taken in this instance would be if Kevin had a weird problem with like the battery. Sure. Or if his phone died or if he forgot to charge it. Yeah. Or whatever. But either way, his phone was off between the hours of 10 a.m. and 11.30. They believe that Kevin left Nona's apartment after killing her around 11.15. This would have put him back in Dover around noon. He was seen at the Bayou Bridge Cafe around 12.30. So the point of sharing that kind of thing is them trying to make the point that he had purposely tried to be seen in public. Sure. They really also tried to drive home the point that Kevin's bloody partial palm print was on the light bulb of the lamp, which was the murder weapon. Mm -hmm. It was weird because most of the blood at the crime scene was still wet, except for the bloody print on the bulb that belonged to Kevin. They Mm. noted that at the time that the lamp was being looked at by investigators, that the print wasn't fully dry and wasn't fully wet. They described it as being tacky. Sure. Okay. To them, this meant that there had been an extended period of time between when the print was made and when her body was found. Okay. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So they also pointed out that when they looked at the print on the bulb about a week or two after the murder, that it was still tacky. Mm. Meaning that it was as dry as it was going to get. Yeah. At the time that they found it. Yeah. So to the prosecution, that means that the print was made at the time of the crime Mm -hmm. and not by Kevin on accident, like he claimed when he was being questioned about it initially. Yeah. So when he was questioned about it during his interrogation, he was basically like, I don't know if I touched the lamp. Right. Like, I fully believed I was going to marry this girl. I saw her dead on the floor. I've never seen a dead body before. Right. I might have grabbed it. I don't Mm. know. Yeah. Or maybe it was in my way and I pushed it. I don't know. Right. So, yeah. But once Mm. again, I mean, they're just... This is too convenient. It's too convenient that you don't remember. Sure. You know? Sure. So they also focused on it appearing as if Kevin had made several concerted efforts to cover his tracks and to create a paper trail. That's mm-hmm. really the whole crux of their of their argument. Yeah. Well, and it, it all presumes that he's just one of the worst humans of all time. Right. And so they're just painting him in like the worst possible light, which like I get it. If you think you know who it is and you have kind of like built up the story, I don't want to like defend what seems to me to be kind of like lazy police work. Mm -hmm. But I do understand the point of like, they feel like they nailed the guy within a few hours. Mm -hmm. And so they just went down that road until it either wouldn't make sense anymore or led uh, led to a prosecution. Right. And they've just been going down that road ever since is what it sounds like. Well, yeah. And I mean, this is also like, 
kind of par for the course in cases where you don't have a confession is you do have to fill in yeah. blanks. Like you yeah. do have to do that. I do understand that to an extent on the part of the prosecution, yeah. the police work, I still have a lot of opinions about. Sure. But as far as the prosecution goes, like they're doing their best to fill in what they believe to be a reasonable timeline yeah. based off of the evidence that they were given. Right. So when the defense had their turn, they laser focused on the fact that this investigation was sloppy and not objective whatsoever. Mm. Like they were not actually trying to figure out what happened to Nona. The investigators, Mark Frost in particular, were trying to figure out how to make the evidence fit to support the theory that Kevin definitely did it. Mm. The stuff that they cited here is wild. So not only did investigators ignore almost the entire apartment when they were gathering evidence, but they literally only focused on the small area of the apartment where Kevin had been after the body was discovered. They didn't enter her bedroom, the upstairs area of the apartment. They didn't attempt to collect prints from either of the sinks or the front door, even though there was blood there. And the list literally goes on. Oh, geez. They didn't even dust the door for prints. Oh my gosh. That's wh- why? That's exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. When the defense showed video of Kevin's interrogation, they only showed the portion of the video where Kevin was punching the back of the chair. Mm-hmm. Like, look at how violent, like, yeah. wow, this is a so, scary guy. He's so unhinged. <laughs> he is unhinged. Yeah. So the defense demanded that more of the video should be shared. On the interrogation video, for like 99% of it, Kevin is an absolute mess. He's devastated about what happened to Nona and was in a total panic that it was going to get blamed on him, even though he claimed he didn't do it. Hmm. What you also see in the video is Frost posing every single thought in question in such a way that like, you know, we may have seen or heard about other instances where Frost's tactics work and you end up with a coerced confession. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, I understand like, there's a methodology to it. Sure. Like there, there is sometimes you get the good cop, bad cop thing. Sometimes mm. you get someone who's just like railing in on the prime suspect. Like I do get that, but it was very much like what you would see in making a murderer. Mm. Oh, so then you did this and then you did this. Right. The only difference was that Kevin was not coerced. Right. Yeah. Which he, is very he, he easy. Stood his ground. Yeah. To eventually be like, maybe I did. You know what I mean? Sure. That's yeah. how the nature of coerced confession is so slimy and so tricky. Mm -hmm. So, so tricky. So that's just what it was. And so Mark Frost would also say stuff like, I have no doubt in my mind that you did this and -hmm. things like that. It was also revealed that the man who administered Kevin's polygraph test wasn't even certified. He had no qualifications to administer and properly interpret a polygraph. The guy that said he'd never seen such a miserable failure mm-hmm. is a himself a miserable failure. <laughs> that's <laughs> he wasn't even certified. That's oh my gosh. Also, I feel like there's a little bit of a red flag there in the first place because I thought that polygraph tests couldn't be used in a court of law as evidence. They're not. I don't. I don't know what they were. Able, it was brought up in the um, trial, but mm-hmm. I don't know if they were actually able to like admit that into evidence or not. Oh, sure. But it was brought up. So it must've been right. Well, I don't know. That's one of those like kind of weird things that I feel like if you say that in front of a jury, it's influential in some way, you know, totally. even if you say, Hey, strike that from all evidence, you can't count that. Well, 
they all heard it. So mm-hmm. like, and that's one of those things that you don't forget. Totally. Like, a polygraph test being failed miserably is a really awkward, like thing to be told, Hey, forget about that. I guess, unless you find this out that the person that actually administered it is a, phony. a hack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and the other thing too, is that they're also in a way, I think banking if it was presented, mm-hmm. they're banking on the fact that most people don't understand that polygraphs aren't reliable. Sure. Like they're not that reliable. Sure. Yeah. At all. I actually fell down the rabbit hole on this one where there's this whole website that's kind of like formatted like a Reddit sub mm. and it's called anti polygraph. And it's literally like discussing oh. how um, unreliable, yeah. incomplete, how you can get a false result, all of that kind of stuff in this case was talked about a lot. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. On that, on that thread at least. So anyway, not only all of that, but the prosecution had never had the condom wrapper tested for DNA. So the defense actually decided to do it. It turns out that the DNA of an unknown male was present on the condom. Oh my gosh. The prosecution said that this only proved their point that Kevin was mad at Nona for cheating. But why wasn't this tested? Why did they not test the condom wrapper? Right. They were like hanging their hats on it, but then they didn't test it for DNA. Right. So the defense also brought in a witness. It was a plumber who was actually working in Kevin's family's home on the day of the murder. Mm. The plumber said that Kevin was at his parents' home in Dover. He saw Kevin there with his own eyes around 1030 a.m. when he arrived to work. Mm Mm-hmm. One other potentially important thing was that apparently there was a lot of text on Nona's phone that she had never opened uh, that were received around the time of 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. They never said who the text was from or texts. Sorry, I, I think it was just one. Okay. But it's highly possible that Nona was already dead by that time. Yeah, yeah. So Kevin's grandma also testified that she'd seen him around 1115 at the family gas station in Dover. They chatted for a bit and she'd given him some money for lunch, which is like such a grandma move. Yeah. yeah. So it is interesting that he was at the gas station at 1115 because the prosecution said that he would have arrived back in Dover around noon after killing Nona. Sure. Yeah. There was plenty of back and forth between the defense and the prosecution about what I've mentioned above until finally in July of 2007, after eight hours of deliberation, the jury had reached a verdict. In the matter of the murder of Nona Dirksmeyer, Kevin Jones was found not guilty. Mm. Okay. For Kevin and his family, they were very relieved. His family had actually put up their house for sale so they could afford the legal fees for the trial. Oh my gosh. It had been hell on earth for all of them throughout this whole ordeal because they also loved Nona. Right. They loved her. Right. So at the end of the day, the investigation was handled so poorly. Yeah. Frost and company straight up just like pooched it mm-hmm. big time. They were not thorough, and so there was not enough of a reasonable amount of evidence, you know, to say Kevin 100% did this. Right, right. So, unfortunately, though, many members of the town, including some members of Nona's family, believed that Kevin had just gotten away with murder. Wow. They still believe that he did it. Hmm. So if it wasn't Kevin, who did this? The first logical step was for police to do a more thorough sweep of the list of 50 or so people that they'd interviewed before to see if any of them may have been hiding something the first time around. Sure. This time, they brought in a man by the name of Todd Steffi. 
Steffi worked as a pastor and also part-time as a police officer. So this guy came in and immediately the whole tone of this phase of the investigation was completely different. Hmm. Unlike Frost, Steffi dug into every last inch of this case, starting first with a list of 50 people that had previously been interviewed. Steffi narrowed down the list pretty quickly, and once he did, he focused on getting the DNA of the men that Nona had been in communication with, whose names were also on the list in hopes of finding a match. Hmm. So Nona had been seeing other boys, unfortunately. And I didn't write this down, I don't think, but Kevin was like, if I would have found that out, I would have just dealt with it. Like, I didn't know that before she died, and it makes me sad to know that. But like... It's not something we couldn't have worked through. She was lonely. Like she'd been going through her own stuff, like, and she's getting attention for the first time and she's like prepared to receive it. So she had all that like newfound confidence from doing beauty pageants. Like, Mm -hmm. but I, I would have just worked through it. Yeah. You know, so that is important to at least Hmm. note that that is how it went down. So this guy dug through these guys trash cans and he even had a girl go on a date with one of the guys. So this part of the story, it feels like a spy movie. Like it really does. Well, and it sounds like some uh, redemption a little bit for this particular uh, police department. Slop top of a case. Yes. Yeah. It's just sloppy. Yeah. So (laughs) this guy, Steffi, he kind of like covertly set up this date between this boy who Mm -hmm. Nona had been talking to Mm -hmm. and a girl who he like, she knew everything. Yeah. She went in on it. He planted her. Yeah. He did. Which I feel like is also a little bit suspect in police work, detective work, whatever you want to call it. But continue. But continue. Yeah. Let me continue. We'll see if you still feel that way. Okay. So he then contacted a specific restaurant in town who agreed to help. After this guy and the girl were done eating, the waitress took his straw from his drink and bagged it up so it could be tested. Wow. For a while, all of these attempts led to nowhere, though. Mm -hmm. No matches, no breaks in the case. Until September of 2007. A man by the name of Gary Dunn had just been arrested on a burglary charge, and when investigators heard the name Gary Dunn, they immediately recognized it. Not only because he was no stranger to regular arrests, but mm. because he was also considered a person of interest in Nona's case for a short time during the initial investigation. Oh, no. This guy was a neighbor of Nona's at her apartment complex. When he was questioned, he had an alibi. He'd provided a receipt to the police from a purchase that he'd made at the time of Nona's murder. Mm-hmm. He passed a polygraph exam with flying colors and was ultimately ruled out as a suspect. But, um... Do you remember how I told you that this investigation was a crapshoot from the Mm -hmm. beginning? Mm -hmm. It turns out that before Nona was murdered, Gary had been charged and convicted of attempted murder and second degree battery. Jeez. Listen to this. So a woman by the name of Kelly Jo Harris was going for a jog when suddenly out of nowhere, she was ambushed from behind by Gary who repeatedly bashed her in the back of a head with a branch. Oh my gosh. Luckily, she was able to get away from him, and he was promptly arrested and charged for his crimes. He'd spent 18 months in prison for these convictions. Yeah. 18 months. Oh, my goodness. For attempted murder of somebody totally random. Absolutely insane. Mm. Just nuts. So as soon as he was paroled, he and his now ex-wife moved into the same apartment complex as Nona's. Turns out... 
Gary was a little obsessed with Nona. Mm. His bedroom window faced hers and their apartment entrances were literal steps away from each other. So I haven't talked about this yet, but Nona was an animal lover. She was known for feeding the feral cats in the neighborhood, and it was no secret that she adored her own cat that would randomly go missing. Hmm. Whenever the cat would go missing, Nona thought that the cat would just run off. And then lo and behold, in comes the hero, Gary, who would bring her cat back to her. Yeah. He would always show up with it, claiming that he found the cat and was returning it to her. Mm Mm-hmm. To some degree, it seemed as if this may have been an attempt to gain Nona's trust. In the weeks leading up to her murder, Gary's ex-wife woke up in the middle of the night and she couldn't find him anywhere. When she looked around for him, she found him outside attempting to peek into Nona's bedroom window. Goodness. Oh, these are the kinds of things that just like... Anyway, keep going. Keep going. I'm oh, not, it keeps getting worse I, I, somehow. I'll have commentary when you're done here. Okay. Because this is, oh, this is making me like just annoyed. I know. So investigators got this information and they immediately wanted to do a follow-up interview. Yeah. They rolled up to Gary's apartment and asked him a few basic questions. They also asked him for a DNA sample, which Gary happily agreed to. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough. Well, they should already have that considering that he was incarcerated. So I'm not sure why they needed that at this moment, but whatever. Mm, mm. He did make it super clear that he didn't even know Nona all that well. He said he'd seen her a few times since they lived so close together, but that they never really spoke and he'd never been into her apartment. Mm. So investigators then looked into Gary's alibi. He said that for a while on that day, He said that he was first at a construction site for a short time, and then he went out shopping with his mom at the time of the murder. He'd given them the receipt from that shopping trip. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So his ex-wife also confirmed this. The date on the receipt, though, they had to dig to find it. But the date on the receipt was not December 15th. It was December 13th, two days before the crime. Did he, like, mess with the date? No. They just didn't look very hard. They just didn't look very hard. Oh, so what the assumption here was, was that it was pay. It was a credit card payment. Yeah. And so it posted to his account on the 15th, on the 15th. But But the receipt was for the 13th. 13th. Oh, he'd given them like a bank statement. Yeah. It wasn't actually a receipt Mm -hmm. that he'd given them, but they didn't look at the they had to go to the store that he claimed to have bought something from. Yeah. To find it. Oh, gosh. This guy. The Steffi guy yeah. literally went through, because this was 2005, mm-hmm. not everything was digitized. He right. went through like boxes and boxes of thousands of receipts to find oh my one from that credit card. Yeah. Nuts. Nuts. And the police either didn't look at the receipt at all because they were so focused on Kevin, or they saw it and ignored it because they were so focused on Kevin. Right. So they also revisited Gary's polygraph. You're going to explode. So it turns out that there was an audio recording of Dunn's polygraph exam. At the end of the exam, it was revealed that Gary had failed. But investigators were not aware that the audio was still recording. So Frost went in and asked the polygraph examiner for the results. And when he heard that Gary showed deception, Frost said that Gary had informed him that he had a heart condition that may have swayed the results. Without actually confirming this with medical records or a medical exam, Frost took Gary Dunn at his word. The polygrapher's response was, quote, I'll say he passed. 
Oh my End goodness! Quote. So the polygrapher who wasn't certified, was not certified, said, "Ah, oh, I'll just call it a pass." Yep. Wow. I hope that guy's in jail. Honestly, that that's that might be next week's story. We're gonna find out. <laughs> <laughs> so this was all according to a lawsuit that was filed later on. Just as a side note, but like, what? <sighs> Wow. All of that is such a mess. I can't even believe it. Yeah. So one more thing that makes Gary look like a murderer and the police on the investigation look totally incompetent is the condom wrapper. Yeah. So not only had the prosecution neglected to test the wrapper for DNA, but so had police. Police never tested it. Jeez. When it was tested against Gary's DNA, the results came back as a partial match. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm not well-versed in DNA and forensics and all of that, but because of this, this piece of evidence would not be admissible in court. Because it's a partial match and not a full match? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. But especially considering all of the other evidence, there was enough to arrest Gary and charge him with Nona's murder. Yeah. His trial began in 2010. The case against him was pretty rock-solid. They believe that Gary, who had a long history of crimes that were violent and sometimes sexual in nature, had become obsessed with his neighbor. Mm. It's believed that he used Nona's cat as a ruse to get her to trust him. On the day of the murder, it's believed that Gary had showed up to her apartment with the cat and had somehow convinced Nona to let him into her home, which would explain the lack of evidence of a Mm break-in. Content warning, there's going to be several moments for the rest of the episode that I'll mention sexual assault, attempted sexual assault, and domestic violence, just as a warning. So once he was in her apartment, it's believed that Gary had attacked Nona and either raped her or attempted to rape her while wearing a condom. Mm -hmm. So he came prepared. Yeah. He grabbed a knife and began stabbing at her and then ultimately killed her by slamming the lamp into the back of her head. He had kept the condom on to keep his DNA out of the crime scene, but he forgot the wrapper. He then convinced his wife to cover up for him. So his then wife, ex-wife at the time of the trial, Mm -hmm. agreed to this because she was terrified of him. He had been violent against her in the past. On the day of the murder, the ex-wife also testified later that Gary was alone at the apartment the whole morning. She'd lied about where he was because she was afraid of him. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Which, I mean, that would give him the opportunity to pull this whole thing off. For sure. But the condom wrapper and DNA evidence wasn't admissible, like I said, so the jury didn't even know about that part of the story. Mm. Oh, oh. So that wasn't even part of his trial at all. All mm. of that. All of that was, but not the condom wrapper. Oh, okay. Um, Like the, the DNA evidence on the condom wrapper was not able to be. Got it. But the rest of the, the, like rest the of timeline, that him being there. Okay. Yes. Yes. So Gary's defense basically made the point that no, Gary didn't do it. Kevin did. (laughs) I have no clue how this was legal, but they were actually able to have a request granted to bring Kevin back in to be grilled on the stand again. Oh, my gosh. Reminder that he's already been tried for this case and acquitted. Right. Which he legally can't be uh, tried again. I don't know how this was allowed. I really don't. That's. Wow. But with the defense being good at their jobs, their questioning of Kevin on the stand did enough to place doubt in the minds of members of the jury. No way. After deliberations, it was a hung jury, so it was declared a mistrial. Gary was tried again in 2011 and was luckily in jail between the trials so he couldn't go out and victimize anyone else. Yeah. This time, they also brought in Kelly Joe Harris to testify. 
She shared her story with the court, demonstrating once again that Gary Dunn was a violent, opportunistic offender who would not hesitate to attack a woman unprovoked. Mm -hmm. Surely this, plus everything else that was presented, should be enough to get this guy some actual jail time, right? Wrong. Oh, are you serious? Another hung jury, another mistrial. What? Really, at the end of the day, I do feel for the jury in this case. Because even though there was a ton of evidence against Gary, there wasn't enough evidence available to them for them to be able to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. So yeah. Gary Dunn was released. Wow. Before he could be tried again for Nona's murder, in December of 2018, Gary decided it was a good idea to drive up to a church and try to force a young woman into his car. Goodness. Luckily, she was able to fight him off, and she reported what happened to her to the police, giving a detailed description of her assailant and his vehicle. Later on, on the same day, Gary went ahead and flashed himself at a woman who was out shopping and then tried to force her into his car. This woman happened to have also been a student at Arkansas Tech. He was caught very quickly and was sentenced to 15 years in prison at the Arkansas Department of Corrections for two counts of attempted kidnapping and indecent exposure. Jeez, Gary. Unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. So Kevin went on to file a civil suit against Frost, Bacon, Gary Dunn, and the city of Russellville for the absolute joke of an investigation and trial that he had to undergo. Yeah. Unfortunately for Kevin, he'd reached the statute of limitations on the suit, and so it was dismissed. He let too much time pass, which is unfortunate. But he did go on to become a criminal defense attorney, and he now practices law in Russellville. Wow. Which I thought was really cool. That's crazy. I also saw that he's married with kids now, so I'm happy that he was able to, like, find peace, you know, and move on. Yeah. Nona's family is also now in a better place with Kevin, and they no longer believe that he was responsible for her murder. Oh, that's, that's good. In Nona's memory, Arkansas Tech University established a musical scholarship. Her high school also established an annual scholarship for band and choir students in her memory. And then there's the Nona Dirksmeyer Talent Award that I believe is an award given across a few different Arkansas beauty pageants in her memory. Hmm. As for justice for Nona, while it seems pretty obvious for most people that Gary Dunn is most likely the one who did it. Yeah. Nobody has been convicted yet, so her case technically remains unsolved. Wow. And that is what I have for you today. Wow. I have a lot of mixed feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like mixed maybe isn't the right word, but I, I have a lot of, <laughs> just a lot of feelings. And at the end of the day, there's, there's just something to be said about bad police work mm. that, from the very beginning starts as like, if you don't have that figured out, you're going to have a mess all the way through the rest of the time. And I, I am just so sad for everybody involved that got whipped around like crazy. Mm -hmm. that got mistreated in honestly, some of the most like, I don't want to say the most horrendous ways because Nona obviously got mistreated in the most horrendous Mm -hmm. way, but everybody else got pretty messed up through all this for really. Except for Gary. He had a freaking great time. Gary had a great time and he continued to have a great time until 2018. And who knows, maybe he'll, maybe he's having a great time now. And honestly, that's sad. And I think that guy has some, 
Oh, I am very serious. convinced that he did it. Yeah. I am very convinced. Yeah, but. Well, and also, got to remember, it was Frost's first yeah. homicide case that he was investigating. Yeah. And I think they were right to look into the partner, to look into the boyfriend. Right. But I think from the minute that they saw the shocking sight of a the boyfriend covered in blood. Yeah. That was all it took for them to make up their minds. Which is so strange. Like, I, I get the theory of he comes back to the scene of the crime, mm-hmm. cross-contaminates, and messes the whole thing up on purpose. Like, it, like you said earlier, the theory itself isn't a bad theory. It, it checks out in a lot of ways, but the problem is that it starts with bad police work from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And whoever... Uh, this frost guy is if he is still an officer or what if he listens to this someday and thinks that i'm a joke whatever like i don't care mm-hmm. Whatever, <laughs> um, frost yeah but like i think this really what this comes down to is uh when bad police work is at the start of something mm-hmm. like this it makes a mess and so maybe there's a precedent and i hope maybe now in russellville there's a precedent of let's not let the rookie uh, take the lead mm-hmm. on these sorts of things. Well, I actually think that the sergeant, I think that James Bacon was technically the lead investigator, but or maybe it was just the title given sure. to him was lead investigator. But during the interrogation video yeah. and a lot of the like real sloppy bits I guess besides a press conference. Sure. Frost yeah. was there, but Bacon gave the press conference. Right. Well, as he, that makes sense because yeah. he's the face who should. In, but in he's also the one who said, we know who did it, but right. we're not going to say who. Like right. we're in seventh grade being like, yeah. oh, I'm not going to tell you who I kissed at the bonfire or something <laughs> stupid like that. Like right. this is actually like a really big deal. Somebody yeah. who was loved and who mattered and who had dreams and goals was yeah. violently taken from this world Mm -hmm. and we're playing footsie with evidence. Ridiculous to me. Just so ridiculous. Nona deserved better. Her family deserves better. Yeah. This, this story drives me crazy. I hope that they just, at some point, Gary just decides to do the right thing and confess and and confess. Cause I really think who else, who else? Right. I mean, they also ran DNA against dozens of other men. Wow. On that list of mm-hmm. 50 people. And none of them yeah. were even a partial match besides Gary. Yeah. And so I wish I did understand how that works. Same. I, yeah, a little I bit feel, better. I feel like that's that's an interesting bit of evidence that to say there's a partial match so we can't count it t- towards evidence. That seems a little bit odd to me mm-hmm. um, because I don't know how else that partial well, I thought that DNA would get there. <laughs> I thought that but. partial, when you get a partial match, I thought that the definition was like, it's familial DNA. Mm-hmm. So like it, it may or may not be this person, but it also may or may not be somebody like directly related, related to. to them. Yeah. But like who's related to Gary, that would right. be in Nona's apartment. That would beg a lot of other questions. Exactly. Also him, Creeping in her window when she's sleeping in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's weird. And purposely trying to be around her and then lying and saying he never spoke to her. There's, yes. But like a lot of people knew that Gary would bring the cat over and they would talk about the cats. Yeah. 
to to bring this a little bit to a close because we I could, could rant about this one all sounds, day. Sounds like it. <laughs> sounds like it. I, I think we we maybe should uh, just allegedly. <laughs> it might be be good for us to just take a moment to remember the people that are hurt in the mm, story. Totally, which would be Nona for sure, mm-hmm. her family. Kevin mm-hmm. and his family. All and of her friends. Yeah. Her little these, sister. Yeah. And the big big brother, big sister thing. Yeah. All these people who had direct connections to these two families mm-hmm. that their whole lives were changed forever. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so thankful to know at the end that like there's some there's some redemption in that story in those families reconciling yeah. over that. Because you could have bad blood for that forever, mm-hmm. honestly. Well, I guess at, I think it was either at the trial or immediately after uh, Nona's stepdad stood up and said, damn it, Kevin, you got away with it. <sighs> yeah, it was really rough. It was yeah. really sad. I saw that in some newspaper articles, but I didn't see it across the board. So I was like, "Ooh, I don't know if yeah. I want to include that. But so, I saw it in yeah. enough places that he, for a long time, believed mm-hmm. that Kevin did it, which is that's got to be such a burden on his shoulders because from where he's sitting, he's let this boy into his home yeah, and like he loved his stepkids and I didn't protect her, you know, like that like unwarranted guilt. So yeah, I think about, I heard this story a couple years ago and during this time of year, I think about this story Mm -hmm. pretty much every year because it was around this time that it happened. And I remember that it happened so close to her birthday too. Mm -hmm. She'd been 20 She was almost 20, but yeah, I just think about her family. I'm glad they did a lot of really great stuff like in her memory Yeah, yeah. and that there are people that like are still talking about this case. Like Nona's not going to be forgotten. Yeah. And at the end of the day, she's the most important person in this story. Mm -hmm. So (sighs) that's a rough one. Yeah. Well, for everybody listening, thank you for listening to the unusual, unsettling and unsavory story today. Uh, I definitely feel unsavored. There's a lot of unsavoriness to this one. Yeah. If you would, please make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a five-star review on that platform. You can also follow us on social media. We are uh, on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And uh, you can also connect with us directly through Patreon. How can they do that, babe? (laughs) I will tell them. So you can actually click the link in our Instagram bio in our Facebook about section, Mm. or you can go on to Patreon on the app or the website and just search this one's a doozy podcast. And for $5 a month, you can support what we're doing here. And there are also regular polls where you can help us decide episode topics and a monthly charity Mm. that supports, you know, just, things that we believe in causes that we believe in. So yeah. yeah, Once you go check that out, we'd love that. Yeah. Well with that, thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week for another doozy. Bye.